The reading this morning is found on page 1148, and it is uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. So page 1148. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the one who is poor, you stand there or sit on the floor at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For what, God, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical, physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. And so to the one God, the only God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be all honour, praise, and glory due, both now and forevermore. Amen. We're continuing our look at the letter of James. Don't know about you, but I always find the letter of James very challenging because he's very direct and very practical about living out our Christian life. Someone once uh, 
entitled it Faith in the Marketplace, and I think that's uh, about it. It's, it's about living out our faith day by day. So what would Jesus do? Well, I wonder if you remember those woven bracelets with the letters WWJD on them. The you got one. Yeah, yeah, that's still in vogue. There you are. The WWJD movement started in 1989 when the youth group at Calvary Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan studied Charles Sheldon's 1896 novel, In His Steps. In the novel, parishioners preface every thought and action with, what would Jesus do? And begin to see the difference it makes. Calvary's youth took Sheldon's model to heart and made up colourful woven bracelets to wear as a tangible reminder of that powerful question. Soon people throughout their community were wearing the bracelets and it mushroomed from there. By the late 90s, the letters WWJD could be found and a multitude of books. Well, James does something similar in the passage we had from his letter. And he starts off by reminding them of Jesus' very nature. He is the glorious Lord, the one with divine glory. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of all, and the Christ, the anointed one of God. Now, having reminded them of their glorious Lord, he wants them to act in a way that's fitting as those who believe and trust in him. So what kind of things does James outline as suitable actions for those whose faith is in Jesus? He starts off by talking about favoritism within the Christian community. So he says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in, also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there. Or sit at my feet? Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, that's a pretty harsh way of putting it, but James is just like that. One of my former lecturers at college writing about this puts a humorous modern-day slant on it. He writes, Instructs rich man, his jeweled rings sparkle as he brushes an imaginary speck of dust off his designer jacket and takes his hymn book. The church treasurer's eyes gleam. <laughs> there will be a collection worth counting this morning. The steward fusses around him. Have this seat here, sir, he says, polishing it with his handkerchief. It's one of the best. 
Then poor man arrives. He looks a mess. And he is a mess. James is not squeamish about the words he uses, as some of his translators are. Taking him literally, this man's shabby clothes are not just coming apart at the seams. They need fumigating. Not to put too fine a point on it, poor man stinks. His presence is an embarrassment in a respectable church. So what does the steward do? Turn him out? No, that would be most unchristian. But there's no need to make a decent church seat dirty, is there? Poor man can stand. Or if he must have a seat, he can sit on the floor. Notice the implication in verse 3 that the steward already has his seat. No doubt he put his hat on it before anyone else arrived to make sure that no one would take his special place. Ouch. David Field certainly puts it in terms that we can recognise. Would that really happen in our church? Are there people we would rather not admit into our services or our meetings? In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This favoritism that James talks about is a form of judgment. It's discrimination against another fellow human being. And it's so easy to do. Before we realize it, in our own minds, we make instant judgments on people by their appearance, by their dress, or by their way of speaking. It goes against Jesus' teaching in his summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. As Tom Wright puts it, the world is always assessing people, sizing them up, putting them down, establishing a pecking order. And God, who sees and loves all alike, wants the church to reflect that generous, universal love in how it behaves. God does turn the world's values upside down. And James refers to that when he talks of the rich being those who could afford to buy the best lawyers and can afford to sue those who speak against them. He also suggests that the rich may not be those with a faith in God. They are more tempted to rely on their own wealth and status. Just like the rich young man who approached Jesus asking about entering the kingdom of God. He went away sad when Jesus suggested he give away his material wealth as a first step. That was a step too far for him. 
Well, that sounds very contemporary as we consider our materialistic culture in this country today. How many are ready to set aside material things that become idols, taking the place in life which is really God's? David Field again writes, Faith is the best currency to have in your purse or wallet. Far better to be rich in faith than to earn an inflated annual salary. This matches well with Jesus' advice to pay more attention to heaven's wealth than earthly treasure trove. And what goes for individual Christians goes for churches too, according to Scripture. In the book of Revelation, the risen Christ commends the church at Smyrna for getting its priorities right. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. But he condemns the congregation at Laodicea for allowing their standards to slip. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. James's first readers knew how the prominent people in society were the ones who turned nasty when confronted with the gospel of Christ. The rich sponsored a fortune teller in Philippi and they were incensed when Paul drove a spirit from the young girl that they owned. They made a lot of money by her ability to foretell things. Once they realized they couldn't make money from her again, they had Paul and Silas thrown into prison. Then there was the case of the silversmiths in Ephesus. They caused a great riot because they feared they would lose their trade in making little silver images of the goddess Artemis. Paul had undermined people's faith in such images as he preached about man-made gods being useless. These are the sort of incidents that James would have had in mind as he wrote about how the rich would oppress Christians and blaspheme God's name. He then goes on to talk about the seriousness of sin, and he uses terms of the law. We might be tempted to say, well, a bit of favoritism is not a great sin after all. James doesn't allow that excuse. He points out that any breaking of God's laws is equally serious. He gives us the picture of the man in court accused of murder using the defense, well, I never committed adultery. Well, that may be an exaggeration here, but it makes the point clearly. Any sin, any breaking of God's laws for living are just as serious as each other. Again, Tom Wright makes the point. As one wise writer put it long ago, the law is like a sheet of glass. If it's broken, 
it's broken. It's no good saying it's only a little bit broken. A sheet of glass can no more be only partly broken than a car tire can be only partly flat. If it's flat, it's flat. James sees already, even these, in these early days of the movement, that some people were trying to drive on the flat tire of social prestige rather than the full tire of loving one's neighbor as oneself. James then talks about showing our faith by the way we live it out. Many have thought that by emphasizing deeds so strongly, James has made out that we can be saved by our works. But that's not what James is saying. He is very practical in his letter. And he talks here of people who he knows are believers, but does that really show in their everyday lives? A church I was at in North London had a notice on the vestry door. If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I find that very challenging. I've found it challenging all the way along every time I think about it. Here James puts up two different characters with alternative approaches to their faith. The first we might call the friendly sympathizer. He switches on his telly and sees some terrible disaster happening elsewhere. He tuts in a sympathetic way. Poor people, fancy having to go through that. Then he gets up, switches off the telly and raids the fridge completely forgetting what he's seen. James's criticism is that he should have been moved to do something about the situation that he saw. Could he send a donation to a relief organization? Could he do some voluntary work to help out some people in need locally? Or could he pray about the situation, bringing a heartfelt plea before God? Often we see prayer as a last resort or something that we can do quickly without it being any real cost to ourselves. But prayer is powerful. If we can't take any physical action ourselves, we at least can pray with feeling. Having seen all that, let it get in you and really pour it out to God. That's the scenario that James talks about when he mentions brothers or sisters without clothes or food. The reaction, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, is really doing nothing to help that person. Was James just referring to brother and sister Christians in need? Well, he may have had that in mind. The old proverb, charity begins at home, certainly means we have a responsibility to each other in the household of faith. And that's certainly the place to start, 
to think seriously about our pastoral care of each other. But it can be taken to mean a wider reach to our sympathy and our action. We should feel also for our brother and sister human beings. Whatever their lifestyle, creed or ethnic background, they are fellow human beings with needs and feelings like ours. The other character James holds out to us is what may be called the idle thinker. The one who has grand theological knowledge, believing great academic truths about Christ, but not prepared to act on them. It gets no further than their mind. James makes the point that even the demons accept that there is one God and only one God. And we know they at least respond to that. They respond in fear. The academic theologian who would rather stick to words than actions is showing no response to his theology. In Discipleship Journey, Carol Mayhall tells of a woman who went to a diet center to lose weight. The director took her to a full-length mirror. On it, he outlined a figure and told her, this is what I want you to be like at the end of the program. Days of intense dieting and exercise followed, and every week the woman would stand in front of the mirror, discouraged because her bulging outline didn't fit the director's ideal. But she kept at it, and finally one day she conformed to the longed-for image. How much do we long to conform to the image of our glorious generous Lord Jesus? Do we find ourselves thinking that question in our minds? What would Jesus do as we face different situations day by day? Let us be ready to show mercy to others and not judge them. Let us be ready to act to help a brother or sister human being where we can. May our actions witness to our faith in a loving and generous God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you came to look for the lost and live with the rejected. Breathe into us your love and compassion that we may live as you lived and rate your joy in heaven above our image on earth. Amen.